Welcome to Why Everybody Hates You, an audio support group for reputation professionals. If you have any responsibility for how people talk, think, and feel about your organization, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, reputation coach, Daisy Powell Chandler. Time and time again, I watch clients with a more financial mindset struggle to comprehend how politics might impact their businesses. And politicians underestimate the impact of markets and business behavior. For this episode, I spoke to Helen Thomas, CEO and founder of Blonde Money, a risk monitoring consultancy that brings together years of experience in the worlds of Westminster and Wall Street to advise clients on political risk and how it affects financial markets. Hi, Helen. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It is marvellous to have you. Why does everyone hate politics? I think a lot of it is to do with the cacophony of noise that you walk into these days if you read anything about politics whatever side you take to any of this if you open a newspaper if you're on social media there's somebody with an opinion and they're going to throw it at you and I don't blame people for just thinking sometimes they'd rather switch it off and if I might make a a particular point about the, the state of the world today We've had a massive change to our lives and our, our world with the pandemic, with war, with inflation. I mean, these are, well, it's quite, it's quite the opposite to the end of history. It's kind of like history suddenly thrown at you in three years. <laughs> so, so I think that can be a bit overwhelming. Yes, I was saying that to someone the other day. In the 90s, I'm sure I was promised that history had ended and it was all going to be <laughs> lovely and calm from now on. That doesn't seem to have happened. Obviously, there is a difference, though. In our personal lives, we might choose to hide under the cover and ignore all the coverage of the COVID inquiry or Brexit or whatever it might be that's driving us mad today. But when we work in reputation or risk monitoring, that is a lot harder, isn't it? And yet some companies seem determined to ignore politics as much as possible. They do. I think sometimes that's because it's complicated and thorny and doesn't fit into the way they look at the world by which I mean a lot certainly of my clients being financial institutions are very used to quantitative measures and they like as much data and charts as possible and you know politics is often about people and people are messy and unpredictable and do strange things and that can feel quite disconcerting I think to to many people and many businesses. So I think there's something about the nature of politics that, you know, it's it's just hard to grab a hold of it and therefore it goes in the too difficult to look at box. Mm, Yes, or or what we find quite often is that you discover the the political reputation part of of a company's risk management is being run on, on someone's spidey sense rather than on any particular data management process. Absolutely. It, it It's almost too qualitative because the thing is, of course, we all have our own prior judgments on things. Um, and even with the spidey senses, which is a great, great way of describing it, you know, that person may only know a certain particular group of the political world or and or have their own experiences, which is all, you know, which is useful. 
but it, it's kind of inherently narrow. It's also, again, it, it's hard to feel like you can hang your hat on it. And I'm not, I don't want to denigrate people in the spidey senses world. Many of them are extremely good at what they do and there is a place for their information. But I do think that it's very qualitative and then the other, the other extremes can be very quantitative and just all numbers and, and there needs to be a space that brings the best of both together. That's, that's what we try to do anyway. And what's at stake if you don't get this right? What happens when you try to ignore politics? Well, I think it comes back and bites you on the bum, doesn't it, really? Whatever, <laughs> whatever way you look at it. Uh, because, of course, in the 1970s and 80s, politics and economics were inextricably linked. And in a way, it was that sort of the 90s and the 2000s where, I mean, Mervyn King called it the nice decade, the non-inflation consistent expansion decade. You know, Gordon Brown had ended boom and bust every Every budget was great. It was all good times. But of course, actually, that was the anomaly. Um, it was a very unusual confluence of events. And we are going back to actually more of a normal world that we had in that you know pre-1990s period. Um, so I think as well, part of it could just be what you're steeped in. So it's quite interesting when you just talked about people going into finance. I think, so I, I went into it 2001. I think... That, of course, coincided with huge, well, tech bust, but tech was really taking, had taken off just before it all collapsed, but the technological revolution was going. Quantification of everything was easier because computer power got greater. And we, I think, and, and, and then the other kind of political stuff just did its own thing in the background. And the worlds were able to be really separate because it sort of suited them. And just the point is that that wasn't, ever going to last really and and kind of so we've kind of come crashing back into a as I say a more normal world where the two are intertwined so what does that look like when it goes wrong well I think we've had an interesting example of this recently so um mergers and acquisitions a big takeover deal there was one announced earlier this year uh Microsoft massive company obviously buying Activision uh, a UK gaming company um, who are very well known in their field you know they have big names like World of Warcraft and Call of Duty in their roster don't know if any of your listeners will be avid players of those but they may well be it's a big multi-billion dollar deal uh, has an impact globally and because of it being such a large deal um, competition concerns were obviously raised and each jurisdiction has its own competition commission or whatever you want to call it that looked at whether this deal uh could go through based on its own assessment of of competition and uh, to rehash this for those of you who don't know initially the US FTC Federal Trade Commission and the UK CMA Competition and Markets Authority blocked this deal and over competition concerns and it actually got passed in the EU um that because actually Microsoft provided some remedies that the EU were happy with, but the UK were not so happy with. Now, straight off the bat, that's interesting because the only reason the UK was doing this separately is because of Brexit, um, taking back control. There you go. That's what it means. You have, you know, the the you get to make your own decisions on this sort of thing. And but you know, to your point on this. Um, Although it looks a very 
purely financial decision about one company buying another company. Um, of course, there are political impacts to this because, yes, competition law is it's legal, it's economic, but but there is always a political dimension to it, and it did cause quite a kerfuffle um, in in the political sphere of you know well hang on why is the UK blocking this and the EU isn't is the UK doing some sort of some sort of deal with the US to try and stop this. I should say, by the way, that now at the time of us speaking, it's all gone through. Um, but there, you know, it, there were there were significant concerns uh, raised initially about this. And of course, the it depends who runs these competition authorities and how they make their decisions and what they they uh, even with all the best experts, Michael Gove's least favorite word, even with the best experts in the world. Um, you know, that the margin, you can decide whether to wave through these deals or not. And, um, I mean, the head of Microsoft was furious that the UK blocked it and said, that's it, you know, Britain isn't open for business. Um, and I went to a select committee hearing with the, where they were, the MPs were grilling the uh, heads of the CMA, Competition Markets Authority. And, Actually, it was it was an interesting combination that, you know, they, they were attacked from all sides. It wasn't just the Conservative MPs. Some of the Labour MPs weren't happy either because it does have a political ramification. Of course it does. Um, is it, you know, it, it, because, because when it comes to financial markets, decisions like these set precedents because, remember I said it's all very quantitative, well, if you're going to look ahead and think about a merger where you want to buy a British company, because of deals like this getting held up, you are going to have to take into account what happens if there is a problem with this. And it's um, it's very hard to, with all the data in the world, to know exactly you know how that deal is going to go. And, and even with all the spidey senses in the world, it's very hard to know. So... Um, it's that is a kind of very high level example of how politics can derail financial markets and how it can have very long lasting ramifications because you know financial markets remember and it flows back the other way doesn't it so they had that select committee hearing and then in the end the cma decided to go back and have another think about it didn't they Yes, it was. I mean, it's quite astonishing how this all panned out. I really recommend people have a look at, at what happened through um, July and August this year, because the CMA's process was is supposed to be that when they make their final judgment, I mean, they have various phases, the parties you know bring forward evidence, the experts look them over, but they make a decision, that's their decision. The appeal process is only to go back and check have they been reasonable in their process. It's not like the appeal can hear new arguments. Uh, whereas in the US, the FTC makes a decision and then it goes to court and gets litigated. And that was where the court in the US eventually a judge ruled it could happen. But in the UK, we have a different process. But the CMA just kind of, they'd never done this before, you know, said, yeah, okay, well, we did that process, but... Um, okay, Microsoft, come back to us with something completely new and we'll start again. We'll, we'll run the process again. Oh, and then by the end of that, I mean, Microsoft did agree to some uh, to some remedies, including selling off elements to a third-party company. But, you know, then, then they passed it through. But again, when I talked to you about, you know, credibility and certainty of process, that whole decision has thrown all of that up in the air. Um, 
because you need institutions to behave um, reliably and consistently. I should just say on this point about the CMA and Brexit, you know, the, the, the entity of the CMA for a long time was not as busy and not as involved in such high profile deals because we were part of the EU. So there is an element of this that this is, although it's a long running institution, it used to have different names. People probably remember the mergers and monopolies commission in the 80s and things. It's, 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 we've always had one, Office of Fair Trading. We've had this, but it's gone under different iterations. Inevitably, post-Brexit, it's finding its feet. Um, and uh, it's this thing, again, people like financial markets, people just want to see things in zeros and ones, but it's always people. It's always political arguments. It's it's always about the context of what's going on around it. And that's a real reminder to people in finance. You just can't um, you just can't ignore how political institutions work. And likewise, the politicians have come a cropper a few times in the past few years because they've ignored how markets work, haven't they? I mean, Liz Truss yes. springs to mind immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we really all should sit back and think what happened there. Whether you agree, disagree, whatever your sort of emotional response to this, let's just stand back and say that the markets panicked about the credibility of the government to such a degree that the prime minister left their post. That is... That's quite an astonishing thing to happen. It's the kind of thing, actually, that happens in in emerging market economies. And I don't say that to be denigrating necessarily to Liz Truss. I just say it about how uh, the kind the world in which we now live, as you say, where poli- where the markets are trying to come to grips with the politics, um, and uh, you know the markets were. Well, of course, instrumental in that. They potentially could be instrumental because of what happened in that episode and because of the lead of the Labour Party have taken since then uh, and maintained, and of course now looks like the Labour Party will form the next government, we can continue to draw a line from that financial market blow up and say, not only did it remove a prime minister, it might well have decided the outcome of an election. And that's, if nothing else, should show people that You've got to look at what the market's doing. It may be for good or bad, but you can't just ignore them and say, well, I don't really understand what a guilt is or what interest rates are, because they're actually having an impact on our democratic process, which is pretty significant. And for a lot of companies, that means coming up with a better way of keeping track of the risks involved in both the action in the markets and what politicians are up to. So how should they be going about that? So firstly, acknowledge that it's a risk that you need to look at. This isn't just going to go away. I mean, goodness, we could <laughs> we could spend a long, long time this podcast talking about all the ways in which politics and finance have interacted in the last 15 years, you know, from the banking crisis to the sovereign debt crisis in Europe, uh, Brexit, sterling collapse, so on and so on and so on. I mean, so many ways this is relevant. So first of all, understanding this isn't going away. These events were not some weird aberration. They are part of the world. And so you you need to understand them. Then appreciate question, in fact, is it being covered by by how you look at risks at present? 
Do you have the quantitative angle? Do you have the qualitative angle? Do you do it regularly? Are you monitoring it frequently? Um, or is it just something, because I know I, I, I was on the board of CFA UK and like many boards, we had a risk register, very common, long, long list. Many people had pandemic on that list. Um, and, you know, it, it, it flashes red or 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 it or it's green and you're fine and people review it annually or even quarterly. But we shouldn't feel too uh, confident necessarily about about those risk registers because there's one the most important thing really about any kind of risk is it's non-linear. You can't just sort of go, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Oh my god, there's a pandemic, right? It, it suddenly these things hove into view. Um, oh my god, the prime minister's been, she's gone. There's another one. Um, there the. The nature of these sorts of risks is in itself mathematically difficult to model. Um, mathematical models can take account of non-linearity, and let's not get into all the geekery over this sort of thing. But it's a bit like, well, put it, I always think of it like this, you know. Um, it's It's a bit like just the way people interact with one another in life. Everything seems to be going along fine one minute, something goes on in someone's life and things change you know they they leave their partner they they move job they move house we are human beings this is what happens and risk is like that as well so as I'm sitting here talking to you right now one of the things we're talking to clients about is the oil price because of uh, the rising conflict in the Middle East and again, if we go to your, you know, spidey senses, you could talk to some real Middle Eastern experts, former intelligence officials, army bosses, you could get a good spidey sense view. You could also run historical data series analysis on the quant side. What happened to the oil price in the 1970s and when there was a war back then? But um, you shouldn't, you, you can never... Just by running those processes doesn't mean you're in control of it. it. means you've started to become aware of it, but how are you going to monitor it on a day-by-day -day basis? Doing one-off annual look or one conversation is a great start, but the risk isn't going anywhere. You've, you've got to keep on it. Mm. So I think that would be my message to people. I think there's also an interesting distinction to be made here between risk identification and risk monitoring because I think what yeah. that, quite often what that annual process you know that that big perceptions audit that a lot of co companies do um, serves as a really valuable way of identifying risks and making sure that mm. the list you're looking at that risk register is up to date but in terms of how those risks move up and down over the year until your next mm. audit that is a slightly different process. And I think you also need to consider groupthink on this. Um, I remember the reason I started my business in twenty was was twenty seventeen. I actually started it, but and I had a blog called Blonde Money for a few years before then. But what prompted me to turn it into a business was the Brexit referendum. I was at a fund management company at the time. A month before the vote, we had a global investment team call across all of our financial divisions and, you know, 55 minutes into this call, nobody has mentioned what happens if Leave wins that referendum. Now, that, and I, I 
interjected and said, can we at least talk about the possibility of it? And I remember, you know, somebody laughing and saying, oh, let's just hope that doesn't happen. And it's like, we're financial market professionals. We are, we may have an opinion, we may have a personal view, but we are supposed to manage and monitor risk. You know, we're supposed to be able to do this. This is part of what we do. So what, so, so when we talk about risk registers and risk monitoring and, and, and the whole world of risk, we need to understand our own biases towards it, which is that um, everyone will have a bias. Everyone does. Of course they do. I mean, my team, yes, my background is I have worked for people in the Conservative Party. Sure, that's my politics. But our analysts have worked for Democrats in America, for Labour MPs. We have a liberal, former Liberal Democrat candidate on our board. Because I would say we may have politics, but blonde money has no politics because financial markets shouldn't care. It's just about what is going to happen. And I think that that is, is something that can be brought to the concept of risk management. Because inevitably, these are things people don't necessarily want to think about. Um, and and I, th- I think it's something you've come across as well, Daisy, with you have clients that might know their audience, or think they do, but you still need to run the numbers, do the analysis for them to really get what's going on. Yes. And I think to your point about, you know, we're, we're human, we change, we adapt when we get new information. And that means that sometimes uh, you, maybe you did know your audience, but actually they're going through a cost of living crisis or um, they are members, you know, they're members of parliament for a political party that's going through a a fairly dramatic change or having a traumatic time in by-elections at the moment and that will change how they approach things and and the thing that it changes might be how they feel about your company yeah and not taking that into account and saying well yes well we spoke to them six months ago and it was all fine underestimates the impact that some of these big shifts you're talking about might have on people's views that is a really important point, really important point, that effectively the actors within your risk register are themselves volatile, potentially, uh, depending on shocks, depending on what turns up. And um, you've just reminded me that I, if I'm frank, I, I, I had previously had some discussion with a business that had, that had interest in Israel. And that has the calculation has shifted now. I mean, it, it, it is, it's just different. Um, so it's, and you know, politics is a very, I sometimes feel it's, it's kind of this bloody, visceral, <laughs> mucky mess sometimes. Um, and, and what I talk often about is, you know, the heart, the beating heart of what is going on, which is why, of course, you know, the, the spidey senses are important, which is why people read the newspapers. You do need to get that feel, the feel of it, which can be very, very unnatural to financial market or data-driven people. But the goal, really, what we try and do is, is translate the heart into a chart. Oh, that rhymes. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. But, <laughs> it's yeah, it's take the heart, the heart into a chart. But it, it, but it is. It's about... Um, if there's some way of um, tapping into the heart and soul of what's going on um, and 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 that where we started this whole conversation where two worlds are very distinct, um, we kind of have to map them onto one another and mm. well, that's what we try to do anyway. That is brilliant. Thank you so much, Helen. What I've taken from this is, first of all, 
companies need to be much broader in the types of risks that they monitor and that they model and potentially prepare for in their own business planning, but also that they need to come up with a framework for understanding how the very human beating heart of politics might shift and how that might impact them, even in quite short-term situations. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. That's everything from us. A big thank you to my guest, Helen Thomas, CEO and founder of Blonde Money, for talking to me about everything from Liz Truss to computer games and how to monitor political risk. I would love to hear from you which lessons particularly stood out from this conversation. Perhaps this was the timely reminder you needed to update your risk register or to overhaul how you take account of political risks. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll tell your colleagues and perhaps write us a review on your usual podcasting app. It really does help new listeners to find the show. Thank you, as always, for listening to Why Everybody Hates You. And remember, you are not alone. 